1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoke and audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. ATT.
0: This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback.
3: Paper Ghosts is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Paper Ghosts. So they took the DNA and how did you feel about that?
4: Oh, it didn't bother me because, I I mean, I knew I wasn't part of it.
5: They got to eliminate everybody. Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's always easy to tell the truth, right? When you start making up stories, it'll change over time. I mean, if, you know, if I told you a lie today and you came back to me five years later you know, and asked me the same question, I may not respond the same way, right?
6: He alone perpetuated the Lonnie Bierbrot sort of fantasy as a suspect because he was no longer part of the investigation, so he wasn't aware that Lonnie had been uh, eliminated.
3: My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. This is Season 3. Paper ghosts in plain sight. As you have heard throughout the podcast, retired ISP Master Sergeant Marty McCarthy has been the driving force behind the accusation that Lonnie Bierbrot, a former truck driver with a criminal background from LaSalle County, Illinois, had something to do with Tammy Zawicki's murder. Because of that, Beerbrot's name has become almost synonymous with the case. Here's a guy who was cleared through blood and DNA. A person law enforcement is convinced had nothing to do with Tammy's murder. And yet, if you look online, he might as well be guilty. By the fall of 2022, I'd confirmed through multiple sources that Lonnie Beerbrot was no longer a suspect in Tammy's murder. Law enforcement, however, did not do much to publicly clear Lonnie's name or, at the very least, reach out to Marty to tell him to back off. Hello? Marty.
4: Hello, how you doing?
3: Marty, how you doing? It's Matthew. So I called Marty myself to discuss the facts that his prime suspect Lonnie Beerbrot was not Tammy's killer, and that much of the ribbing he'd done against the ISP and FBI was for nothing.
4: Yeah, man. How you doing, bud?
3: Good, good. I just wanted to follow up with you and, and talk about a few things. Lonnie Bierbrot was completely and clearly ruled out by blood and DNA. Okay. And they, they first ruled him out in 1993. And so what do you think of that?
4: I don't think much of it.
3: I mentioned that everyone I'd spoken to in law enforcement was basically on the same page about Lonnie. In their view, the eyewitness's story about seeing him along the roadway with Tammy and later seeing his wife wearing a watch similar to Tammy's, well, those stories were false. We could talk about that eyewitness because the eyewitness... Account, I don't think I can put much weight in, and I'll tell you why. Okay, she's traveling on the other side of the highway, yes. and, and she calls this in a week later. And well, it
4: doesn't become an issue, you know. It doesn't become an issue until about a week later. Well, that's I mean, what
3: that's what I'm saying. I mean, I mean, you have an eyewitness who, okay, a week ago I saw, saw, I, I drove by and I saw this green or blue truck, and uh, she slowed down. She and, said she slowed. And, and I saw this guy talking to her. Well, I've seen cars broken down myself. There's no way I could remember what I saw. I don't think it's a good piece of evidence to go on.
4: Okay. I let, f- me, let me ask you this, Bill. Do you think Lonnie stopped in his truck when Dwicky's car broke down?
3: I don't think that was Lonnie. And here's, here's why. Because just up the r- road from where Tammy was broken down, there was mm-hmm. another car broken down.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, a number of them, yeah.
3: Yeah, and and, and so I don't know that <laughs> saw Tammy or saw the other girl who was broken down. I don't know that we don't we have no way of knowing that, and I I can't hang my hat on a witness on the other side of the highway, driving sixty miles an hour. E, well, sa- she
4: wasn't driving. No, 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 no.
3: E, okay. So she slows down. Slow down. So she slows yeah. down, but she's on the other side of the highway. And
4: she felt she had an eerie feeling.
3: She's on. wait a minute, wait a minute. Had wait an a eerie minute. Feeling
4: about, yeah.
3: Let me okay. finish. And she drives by on the highway. And then a week later she gives a statement about it. So if she had an eerie feeling, I don't know why she didn't report it that day or why didn't
4: she stop? Why didn't she drive around? I think that you're kind of sounding to me like the state police's view of the witness. I mean, you're just down on the witness. That's fine. Right. You 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 can include anything you want.
3: I just lost my. She lost my credibility with this watch story. With you know every Lonnie Beerbrad to make him the guy. The entire case hangs on her. Everything. Okay.
4: I think that's true. And I and I think that that's exactly what happened. People flying by at 85 miles an hour. She's the only. Why would lie?
3: I don't think she lied. I don't think she lied. I'm just saying that what she saw, I don't think she saw. You know, she, she's just kind of, you know, oh oh my God, there's a girl missing now. I saw something. Much of Marty's theory about Lonnie Beerbrot hung on the eyewitness's account. I don't blame him for pursuing this lead or for being alarmed by what the witness told him a decade later. But I spent a year trying to confirm her story And just couldn't. The other thing is, uh, uh, sticking with that same witness, there is no watch. Tammy's watch is still missing. Uh, They don't have the watch. No one's produced the watch. (laughs) Never had the watch. That was a story that got out there that she has no idea. No, no, no,
4: no, that's not true. The witness told me, I'm just going with the witness told me, the only witness as far as I know. Uh, who actually saw it and knew where she was and everything, showed her to watch. It was on her wrist. Right.
3: I, ga- I got all that. I just, I, I don't think the witness is correct. You know, you're a polarizing figure in all of this. You and the Illinois State Police don't like each other.
4: Uh, well, let, let, me, let me put it this way. I was on that task force. And I was never satisfied with, with that report. And I on my own went down and found this information out about Lonnie. They had never done it. The case agent never did shit. After the case was was referred to him, not shit, he threw that whole lead out.
3: That lead was pursued quite thoroughly. Lonnie's car and home were searched. He provided blood and DNA. His ex-wife gave a lengthy interview and passed a polygraph. It wasn't blown off, though it may have seemed that way at the time. As much as I respect Marty, it doesn't really matter if he believes any of this or decides not to accept it. Those are the facts of the case. If you choose to look the other way, in my opinion, you have developed tunnel vision.
4: And that lead was never pursued. Had I not been involved, let me just finish That lead would never pursue. If it ends up now that he's cleared, fine.
3: I went through everything I had developed up to this point, focusing on the idea that the ISP hadn't done enough to clear Lonnie. They had done the work. Marty just wasn't briefed about it, and so he assumed the worst. But Marty wouldn't budge. For whatever reason, he's still not convinced that Lonnie can be fully eliminated.
4: Why wouldn't they come out with that information? They never did. I asked about uh, DNA over the years. I've had so many different answers. So, one that there is no DNA. Who is who is saying this? Oh,
3: the and, that's the ISP that's saying it to me.
4: Yeah. Okay. But I don't think the ISP tested this stuff. Uh, I. What I I was sent to the FBI.
3: Yeah, I mean they they worked together, so they all knew what was going on. Um within the investigation.
4: Well, I don't know much about the DNA. Uh, I I find it strange that if they had this, they wouldn't have come out with this. And I mean, they could have, I I find that strange, number one.
3: Well, I'm telling you, he is cleared. He is cleared. Lonnie Beerbrot has been cleared from this crime.
4: I mean, I'm open to, 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 to anything. If they have evidence of this, but in my experience, I accept the witness. She gave me this information. I did everything I could to get that to the state's attorney and to the state police. And they threw up a wall from the minute I mentioned it to them. I found that strange and and weird.
3: Now, knowing what they know at the time, which is this, they've already ruled him out with DNA. So why waste time on the guy? He's been ruled. How, How
4: come the state's attorney never said that?
3: Why would he tell you that?
4: No, 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 no let me finish. Let me finish. The state's attorney never said that. The state police never said that. If that's true about Lottie in 93, why wouldn't they put that out? And here, this is the first time. Here it's what? 2023. That's the first time I've heard this it's from you in 2023. Was that put out publicly that Lottie was eliminated?
3: I don't know why they would put that publicly out until they needed to. I mean, they were, they were keeping a lot of their cards close to the vest on this, right? Um, do, you,
4: do you know how much press there was? A lot of it instigated by me all over the country. Yeah, I've, I've looked they at it at all. They look- was the suspect. And here they had the capability in 93 to blow that out of the water and never did. Don't you find that suspicious?
3: No. The fact is the ISP and FBI were not running an investigation based on what Marty was telling the media that would only hinder their work on the case. There was also a lot of information the ISP did not want released to the public. What would it take for you to believe that Lonnie didn't do this?
4: Uh, I'd like to be convinced that if there's no evidence of the watch, uh, then there's probably not any uh, any more information to go on Lonnie.
3: I'm telling From you, I'm telling you, there is zero information about that watch. That watch is a story that got out there somehow by. No, it's
4: not a story. It's not a story. It's from uh, an eyewitness who interviewed them. It's not just some rumor. Right. Well, what I'm saying is she put out that story. I don't know why.
3: Marty and I spoke for close to an hour. It got heated at times. He was not ready to believe that Beer was innocent, no matter what I said. I do know that Marty ultimately wants Tammy's killer to be caught and brought to justice, and he's not looking for any fame. And if that guy is someone other than Lonnie Beerbrot, so be it. Marty told me he's okay with that. Why did you push Lonnie so hard in the media when you knew that it was gonna piss off the state police?
4: Because I saw him as the killer.
3: one of the goals within all the work I do is to portray the true nature of what investigators go through and show how their work truly unfolds in real time. If there is one standout lesson I have learned over the years, it is the tedious nature of the ups and downs, the exhilaration of thinking you've got your guy only to be let down when that last piece of the puzzle doesn't fit. Over the course of its investigation, the ISP looked at many different potential suspects, people outside the traditional serial killing trucker. Most of those inquiries never made headlines and are known only to the people tasked with investigating them.
8: Well, I appreciate you getting back to me so quickly. Uh, I was working Sunday and I heard uh, something on the radio. Your podcast was about Tammy Jo's wiki. So right away, I recalled that there were some
3: similarities in our case. After the first few episodes of this season aired, I got a call from a former detective who'd worked in the area of Tammy's abduction in 1992. He remembered her story and had knowledge of a potential suspect, one I hadn't previously known about. For various reasons, he's asked for his name not to be used, but agreed to share his recollection.
8: I remember I was on my way home. I was getting ready to leave because I, I, we worked a 10-hour
3: shift. And then we got the call on that. The call was from a neighboring police district, from officers who said a man walked into their station and claimed that there was a dead body in his camper, which was parked in a campground that was under my source's jurisdiction.
8: So we all went to the scene. Camper was locked up tight. They actually got a warrant for the camper. And... Uh, The body was found, it was actually wrapped up in a blanket with duct tape on each end. It was that grayish silver, silver duct tape.
3: Inside the blanket was the body of Denise Marino, a 25-year-old waitress from West Chicago. The camper was parked at the now defunct Hideaway Lakes Campground, just east of Yorkville, Illinois, a city about halfway between Chicago and LaSalle County, where Tammy was abducted just eight months prior. The man who owned the camper was Charles D. Parker, a 38-year-old ex-con who had served eight years out of a 50-year sentence in prison for rape.
8: So I spent several hours interviewing him and he admitted to being the only one with her, um, drinking, they were drinking excessive amounts of alcohol and they were, they were inhaling carburetor cleaner. Um, he met her at a bar in West Chicago and then somehow convinced her to go back there with, I believe he convinced her to go back there with. And from what I can recall, I she did leave with him willingly.
3: My source described a deeply unsettling scene. The young woman had been stabbed a number of times and had been sexually assaulted.
8: The body was, it was obviously signs of, you know, just brutal, um, almost like a torturous thing that he had did to her. She it was she was bound in duct tape and then wrapped up in the blanket with duct tape. But now, the interesting thing, he took her, after she was dead, he took her into the showers, which wasn't too far of a walk from where his camper was. It was one of those truck bed campers, and it was up on jacks, so he could drive in and out from underneath of it. You don't see him much anymore, but it was a camper mounted on, um, on the back of the pickup bed.
3: But it was a pickup. It was a pickup truck. Many of the circumstances surrounding how they met and how he lured her back to his camper did not fit with Tammy's abduction. But there was one detail that piqued my interest and certainly got my attention.
8: One of the uh, investigators searching the camper found the ring that said Tammy, but it was spelled T-A-M-I. Okay. It was kind of like a, a square ring Yeah. with uh, two letters on the bottom, two letters on the top. forms a bigger square.
3: I went back. And asked Tammy's family and a half a dozen of her friends if any of them recall a ring. Anything like that. None did. I still hadn't found out, however, if Parker had been completely eliminated. The chances were slim he'd had anything to do with Tammy's murder. But you can never be entirely certain unless the evidence backs it up. And he was questioned about the ring, Charlie was, and what did he say about it?
8: What the other detective told me is he, he got very angry when he was asked about it. He said, I did not kill Tammy Jozewicki. Um, that's what he said to him, allegedly, when he was asked about it.
3: And he, and he got angry.
8: He got angry. The way I recall them describing it to me is, while well, he said that he pounded his fist on the table.
3: And what happens after that? To my
8: knowledge, the other detective brought that information to ISP,
6: and nothing became of it. I remember Charlie, and this case in particular, because he had tortured her. It was an exceptionally violent rape and murder.
3: Former ISP Lieutenant Jeff Padilla was certain that Parker could be excluded from Tammy's case based on the violent nature of Parker's crimes, and also how Parker met the victim and got her back to his camper. I might also add that Parker was sloppy and didn't seem to be, honestly, smart enough to get away with the murder for 30-plus years.
6: We had looked at him and we had talked about him, and we had talked about him, and he didn't fit for a number of reasons. Yes, he had a pickup truck, but it was in like an encampment. He didn't live in a neighborhood. It was like a mobile home. She had come with him voluntarily back, and at some point, the sexual interaction turned violent, and Charlie found her, and then tortured her throughout the night before she finally died of blood loss. So the MO and, the, and that, that entire situation did not fit at all with what had happened to Tammy. And we didn't dismiss it, but the DNA that we did have was, you know, there was never enough for a CODIS inquiry. You, you know, you essentially could, um, Charlie's DNA is available and it has been encoded. You could do a one-to-one inquiry against him, which I know has been done since then. The MO didn't really match, so we did the best we could to to look into it, but it didn't fit what we had with Tammy.
3: One of the more interesting and certainly promising threats the ISP followed early into the investigation is worth mentioning. If only to put one of the more popular internet-based theories in this case into perspective— and maybe even gain some insight into where it originated.
6: There was a, a guy that was a truck driver for a company that came onto the radar, and it turned out that, he, you know, he was truly a, a sex offender. He had done a home invasion rape in, in like 1988 just prior to the DNA and sex offender laws, <clears throat> and was sentenced to like four years in prison and got out right before Tammy was abducted and murdered. You know, he had done he had, he'd met this girl at a diner that was uh, a waitress. She was like 17 years old, 18 years old, followed her home, waited outside her residence, saw like when the, the, her parents left then broke into the house while she was there and then raped her on the floor in the hallway and, and took her panties as a souvenir. And we were I was like, this has got to be our guy. And, and that was never nobody had ever looked into this, that guy's background. Mm-hmm.
3: If you recall, there was talk early on about Tammy's killer potentially keeping her body in a refrigerated truck before placing it off Exit 33 in Missouri, which answered the question of why, perhaps, her body was not in an advanced stage of decomposition.
6: He was a truck driver. It was a refrigerated truck, so that could account for some of the lack of decomp on Tammy when she was recovered. He was up and down i 80.
3: As the ISP began looking into the guy, they realized he had taken off to the upper
6: Midwest for three days near the time of Tammy's disappearance. And at that time, you know, like if you'd get a little paper receipt from the tollway, that was a big deal because the tolls were expensive for trucks. So they everybody saved the receipts and he didn't have his receipts from going to Michigan. So when we went back and looked at the case, and, and particularly after VDoc, he's a guy that that pops and took up a lot of time from us because then we we went back and looked at all that. We went after him hard, you know, had the FBI do a a covert surveillance to him and recovered, you know, and then did a a one-to-one DNA comparison on him and eliminated him, even though he was like perfect candidate. But boy, we thought for probably a year and a half, we thought he was good for Tammy's murder. I mean,
3: so there's a good example. Here you are, you got your guy, you could have easily tunnel vision that guy and, and oh yeah bullhorn that for the next 25 years right
6: yeah because we dug I mean we I mean that's how we found out all about this previous charge and it was like oh my god look at it this we thought we hit the jackpot and it turned out it wasn't we never got a chance to interview him in the aftermath we just knew that without the DNA being a match we were out of luck with him
3: within all the theories and suspects I had encountered many of which seemed promising at face value there always seemed to be something missing. Something important, the science. DNA is going to solve Tammy's case. I am completely certain of that. And as these things generally go, something we hear about every day within the world of true crime, technology has caught up to Tammy's case. A new DNA profile has been extracted from old evidence, which has opened up a foolproof way of
0: developing a new suspect.
4: We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service.
6: You have reached the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office. If this is an emergency, please hang up and dial 911.
3: Good morning, Sergeant Phillips. This is uh, M. William Phelps, Matthew.
7: Hi, you've reached the law office of Karen Donnelly. Please leave your name, number, and
3: ring. In the year leading up to the release of this season, and even after, I've pounded the pavement and made call after call placing my entire focus on several unanswered questions from years past and several new questions that had arisen in recent months. Most of the time, I got this.
6: Please leave a message. Give me your number if you want to call back. Thank you.
3: In my line of work, you get used to leaving voicemails and never hearing back from people. But persistence is key. And every now and again, it pays off. Hi, Karen, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you Karen Donnelly is the former state's attorney for LaSalle County, Illinois, a position she held from 2016 to 2020. During that time, she became deeply familiar with Tammy's case. We met about two years after she left office at her legal practice in downtown Ottawa, Illinois. You've heard from Karen briefly in earlier episodes. She had Tammy's case for four years as state's attorney, and she was briefed by investigators from the FBI and ISP whenever significant developments came up. Like many others from the region, Karen was already quite familiar with Tammy's story.
7: I was alive and present during this when it happened, so I was very aware of it and very concerned that this happened in such a close location to where I live and that she was such a young age when she was taken. So that's how I knew of it. And then when I became state's attorney, we had a small file on it that we kept in the office. And I looked at the file to see if there was anything in there that was worth noting. And there really wasn't anything that was new until I was approached by the investigators, because they like to come every year, and tell us, you know, whoever's sitting in the seat as state's attorney, what's going on.
3: And so, you begin to look back at this case, and what strikes you mostly about it?
7: I was concerned that there was no resolution. It was, you know, so many possibilities, but nothing was ever zeroed in on that when I spoke to members of the FBI or Illinois State Police, that there wasn't much that they were going on, and it, we just felt like it was a dead end. And therefore, when I was state attorney, I offered whatever services I could give them, whether it was monetary... You know, anything that we could do, I was willing to help. And what did you do first? The investigators came and met with members of the state's attorney's office every year to give us an update what they were doing just to give us a heads up in case they needed something from us. We were often briefed on where they were at. Here's what, you know, some of the public doesn't know. Here's what we're doing They don't share everything with me. They gave us a lot of information about what they were doing. They would often come to us and ask for permission to do certain things that I had to clear with Tammy's mother.
3: In 2020, law enforcement asked Karen Donnelly to reach out to Tammy's mom, Joanne, to discuss using the remaining DNA that investigators had in evidence.
7: It was later on in my tenure as state's attorney that they came to me and asked for permission to consume what they had insofar as the DNA evidence.
3: That's important to say consume because they only have so much. Correct. Once it's used up, it's gone. This might surprise the general public, but certain DNA tests require physically using up part of the actual sample in evidence. And so, once the source sample is gone, that's it. It's gone. Investigators are left with a profile they can match to offenders who are already in some type of DNA database. But they're unable to go back to that sample again. This can be a big deal, especially in an era of constantly evolving technology. Law enforcement agencies are also hesitant consume all available DNA, because it can haunt prosecutors later. Defense attorneys will often ask to test DNA independently, and if there's nothing left to test, it can make it more difficult to be successful in court. Still, it was clear that law enforcement was taking one last chance at solving Tammy's case via DNA. And from what I had learned, it wasn't a shot in the dark they had good reason. So they come to you and you give them the okay to consume that DNA?
7: I first called Joanne and we have this discussion about this is our one shot, you know, we we may not get it again if we agree to do this. She was in complete agreement and said we've got to do what we've got to do. So I authorized them to consume the sample.
3: And that was for testing to put it into CODIS or genealogical or they had a suspect?
7: I don't know that they had a suspect. I know that when we gave them the authorization to consume the sample, it was going to be put into the CODIS system. And I believe at the time there may have been issues about a backlog in CODIS. And at that time I did offer any resources I could as far as reverse genealogy because I'm a crime scene nut and I watch all those shows. And I offered that to the investigators and said, if you need funding to provide the sample to them to do this reverse genealogy to see if they get a hit, I would fund that.
3: And did they take your offer?
7: They weren't at that point yet because I think they were still waiting to submit to CODIS.
3: Since 2020, investigators working on Tammy's case have refocused on DNA. They started reaching out to people connected to Tammy and anyone involved in the earliest days of the investigation and asking them for a DNA sample. On top of that, with the help of more advanced forensic and DNA technology, they started to go back through all the evidence to see what, if anything, the killer could have left behind. When I spoke to Joanne Zawicki, she confirmed that the ISP had been in contact as recently as 2022 and had told her they were sending DNA to a lab in California for testing. Here's Tammy's brother,
5: Todd. DNA evidence became more sophisticated that started becoming more promising. I started to hear rumors that they had additional DNA that was usable. Um, And so, you know, in the last few years, I've become a little bit more optimistic um, as it sounded like the um, operation was still proceeding um, and uh, that they were, building, you know, potentially building a case and starting to express some greater optimism than they did for decades before that. And recently,
3: uh, your mom has told me that has been calling to ask, you know, we have some DNA that we want to submit somewhere in California. Right. What have you heard about that part of it?
5: A couple of uh, local FBI agents came to my house um, and took a DNA swab uh, for me. And I believe they've done the same thing with both of my brothers. They've apparently found male DNA that they can use and they wanted to make sure it wasn't ours. So obviously they have something uh, that they are processing they did find something somewhere that was usable, that was different from what they previously had, at least enough um, and in good enough condition that they wanted to take my own DNA and rule out the possibility there was one of us, one of the boys in the family.
3: I've also been told by law enforcement who were present at the body recovery site in 1992 that they too had recently given the FBI their DNA. Every DNA expert I consulted with, along with former members of the ISP, talked about one of three scenarios likely taking place. That technology had caught up with the DNA collected at the time Tammy's body was recovered, a new suspect had been developed, and or investigators were now pursuing investigative genetic genealogy. Forensic genetic genealogy is a labor-intensive science that utilizes genetic information from direct-to-consumer companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe to identify suspects or victims in criminal cases. Many see it as a magic investigative wand to wave and a suspect appears. But it's far more difficult than that. Millions of DNA profiles within a database help investigators create family trees, working backwards, funneling down, with the hope of matching a DNA sample to a suspect. As former ISP Lieutenant Jeff Padilla explains, the DNA analysis part of the investigation is complex work.
6: Just remember that there's going to be the involvement of of essentially two different laboratories. So one can extract DNA and then expand it, you know. So if you if you had a limited sample, you could then you would use that that lab for that. But then you would need another you would need a genealogy like a a laboratory that specializes in in, in genealogy DNA because it's much different.
3: Right, right. Two different types of testing. If you yes, the source of the DNA in Tammy's case has never been made clear to the public. Where exactly? Did the most viable dna sample or samples come from and what does it tell us about tammy's killer so there was never no um dna on her shorts or anything like that like semen blood no and, okay
6: no okay hey, I, Okay. so yes there's was lots of blood the problem is that her her blood contaminated and eliminated the ability for us to collect epithelial DNA. Basically, the blood-soaked, like her blood-soaked T-shirt, was of no use to us.
3: By the time Padilla and his team started working the case, technology had advanced to the point that investigators were able to collect and test epithelial DNA, or touch DNA, which essentially are cells that have been left behind on an object or surface. Tammy's shirt wasn't something they could test, but other sources now provided investigators with the opportunity to develop valuable
6: samples. Items such as the, the blanket that her body was wrapped in, the clothing that she was found in. The, there was duct tape that was used to secure the ends of the blanket that she was wrapped in. And so, um, all of those items, those physical items, were available to us. Her shoelaces were of interest to us. I'll say that in in, in the process of of our analysis of the physical evidence, uh, using more modern DNA, tests, the shoelaces were of tremendous interest to us. Which was a struggle getting any of this um, any of this physical evidence reanalyzed.
3: So the DNA is is definitely DNA that can connect the killer to her murder. Yes that is the power of technology evolving catching up
6: to killers in this particular case you know 1992 dna was in its infancy at that time there was very limited opportunities to to do dna and the dna tests were inaccurate or inconclusive um but um, by 2012 we had some really uh dna had made some tremendous advancements as it continues to do and so I thought it was worth it to go through the case file like it was brand new, like we had just gotten it, and um, make it a bit of a project for the detectives assigned to me.
3: The issue at hand was whether the amount of DNA law enforcement had left to test in 2022 was enough to develop a viable DNA profile that could be compared to forensic genealogy databases.
6: Somebody had to have contact with the sheep that she was wrapped in. Somebody had to have contact with the with the duct tape. Somebody had to have contact with with Tammy's uh, clothing and body. And and so all those items were uh, methodically identified.
3: In talking with different investigators from the case, I'm confident it was. All of this information, advancements in DNA technology, swab samples, a new lab involved, and potential forensic genealogy, began to make more sense to me during the summer of 2022 when I learned about the latest potential suspect. Someone connected to the DNA findings who had been on investigators' radar since the early 90s. Someone who is was still alive. Not a semi-truck driver or a known serial killer. I'm told the person law enforcement has been hyper-focused on at the time of this recording, was right there throughout it all. On the ground, in the thick of it. Wearing a uniform. On the next episode of Paper Ghosts.
1: And some things have been solved after so many years because of it being left in the spotlight. So. Some days are good, some days aren't so
2: good.
6: <laughs> we always struggled with the idea of um, you know, the c- couple things. somebody in a position of authority or somebody right at her age that she may have known.
1: I believe that she was dumped across state to draw interest away from where she was picked up. And I believe that that's because that area has a connection to her killer.
3: If you are enjoying Paper Ghosts, please listen to my other podcast, Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps, where I use the same storytelling elements you've heard in Paper Ghosts and cover missing person and murder cases. Paper Ghosts is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Additional writing by our supervising producer, Julia Weaver. Our associate producer is Darby Masters. Audio editing and mixing by Christian Bowman and Abu Zafar. Our series theme, number 442, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.